0: Pick up! Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Cape Town, a superhero podcast about superhero things. That's just a little phrase I started saying to kick off these podcasts. It was not planned. I didn't like workshop that one or anything. Now <laughs> I just say it every time. A superhero podcast on superhero things. It's kind of cute. Um I am Tyler
1: Huckabee. I'm Chris Youngblood. And I'm Ryan Hamm.
0: And Hannah Mizell is usually here for everybody who is like onboarding us from uh, from Annie Downs Sounds Fun podcast. I was just on that. Earlier this week, and she sent some new followers our way. So welcome. It's nice to have you here. Uh, usually this is we do have some feel female representation on this podcast. Hannah, the lovely, the talented, the intelligent Hannah Mazelle is tonight being a mother to her child who is very, very sick. And you guys, Ryan, there's half of us are parents. Ryan, you're a dad, and Hannah is a mom. And you guys were talking about a snot situation, like I'm a m- <laughs> snot machine. <laughs> I only kind of paid attention to it because I kind of check out when you guys start talking about parenting stuff on our Cape Town text message
2: group. Yeah, uh, snot or mucus suction, his uh, technology has changed a lot since we were uh, children. So uh, <laughs> there's this there's currently this new uh, this is like way off topic but there's this like thing called the nose Frida it's this like Swedish device and you literally suck the snot out of your kid's nose um which like sounds gross because it is but also it's awesome because it's very satisfying
0: so to like clear up your kid's nostrils or whatever like that.
2: It's like, a yeah, Plus, like the kid usually gets super pissed about it. Um, but you're like, I'm doing this for your own good kind of thing. <laughs> um, I just
1: don't understand like why they don't, why you don't use an actual suction thing. Like why does it have to be a tube attached like to your pump. own mouth?
2: It's mostly yeah. so you can control it because that's like the old one. It could sometimes suck too hard and like actually cause like damage to the nostril. Um, whereas this Get a is little like, brain at. yeah, this like doesn't actually go into the nose. It just sort of like hangs out on, on the outside. And then, you know, the kid still screams and gets mad, but uh it's much simpler and like the closest this is also very gross i don't know why we're starting with this and if anyone if any, <laughs> any listeners like they've already like deleted their subscription this, this episode <laughs> is called swamp
0: thing this feels i think we're <laughs> in this feels good this feels good That's go ahead true. i want to hear it
2: um, the thing i can like the closest thing i compare it to is popping a zit where it's like objectively disgusting but it's also very satisfying
1: yeah, I'm actually into. i have I'm, I'm kind of sold now. Like I'm like all in.
0: <laughs> I've come around on the idea of the of this not mucus suction situation because it seems like, as somebody who has never done it, who only has to think about this in a purely hypothetical sense, it seems like a very like this is the most sacrificial parental thing you can. It feels very tender in a way. Like who else besides your parents would be willing to do that for you? My wife wouldn't do that for me. No way. That is purely the
2: realm. Yeah, but she would do it for your dog. Oh,
0: in a heart. I'm glad she doesn't know about this because otherwise she probably <laughs> already put <went> that. <down. laughs> uh, hey, this is not a parenting like uh, tips podcast. Thank God, because we would be terrible at that. This is a superhero comic book podcast. We are talking about a character called Swamp Thing. Uh, he is one of the more obscure characters we've covered. We kind of decided to do him on a whim because actually he's a character a lot of us don't know a whole lot about. Uh, Even though there are a few movies and there's a TV show to his name from the 80s um, and a very long and and pretty well-known comic book run. He's never really escaped that nerd zone of being uh, really well-known to comic book fans, but not super well-known outside of that. But as always, before we get into this very obscure character, we're going to talk about some news from the week because we like to cover the superhero news that we are excited about. Um, stuff happening in the worlds of like film and TV and stuff like that. And the big news this week was that (laughs) I do want to know how you guys feel about this, about Tom Holland, who we love. This is a Tom Holland Stan podcast account and his like ongoing social media brand of accidentally revealing spoilers of upcoming superhero movies, which is Like maybe it started out as an accident and now it's just become an act, but he accidentally revealed that the new Spider-Man, Spider-Man 2's title is going to be Spider-Man Far From Home, but it was supposed to be like a very clumsy, like whoopsie daisy, clumsy me, I just released the Spider-Man title and I I don't know, I think I'm, I don't need any more accidental Spider-Man reveals
1: yeah because they tried to do something along the lines of like with that with infinity war and it its started it's starting to feel just kind of tired. I felt like even as he was doing the video, he kind of was over it as well so, uh, so, <laughs> so yeah like i I have to imagine it's going to be the last thing that they end up doing this kind of reveal for the yeah, so the title is far from home. I guess like Kevin Feige has said that the movie would take place. Like they would like Peter would be studying abroad. And like, I think they're filming in London on this one. Um, but he's also like been known to misdirect us a ton. So like, this is supposed to pick up after Avengers 4, so maybe it's about him coming back from being in space. Even like Avengers, like that whole idea of like it starting after Avengers 4 could even be a lie. So like who's to say like really what's real anymore? Um I think that's probably one of the great things that Infinity War did was uh, like we see Marvel letting us know that we can speculate all we want, but we're never really gonna like fully know until we see the movie. So yeah, I, I am really curious, like where, like what the title means, and where they would go, especially with Jake Gyllenhaal being confirmed as uh, the villain in the film, which is going to be Mysterio. That's
0: super exciting. I'm way into the idea of evil Jake Gyllenhaal in a movie. Especially because I think, as we've talked about before, there was a time when he was about to take over as Spider-Man from Tobey Maguire back in the early days of the Spider-Man movie franchise. That didn't end up happening. You either die a hero, or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. And he's going to be a bad guy in the next Spider-Man movie. And that's—it's been too long since we've had a really good Jake Gyllenhaal movie. And I'm into the idea of Far From Home as a title. I don't know. It could mean, like you said, Chris. It could mean. It could mean it's their shoot that it tells takes place in Europe, like as part of his study abroad thing, or it could mean that it's in outer space, or we could be completely surprised. I think you're right that Infinity War really leaves us, no matter how much you guess about it, you're probably going to end up being off. But I'm into it. I'm excited so far.
2: I wish that stuck more to like the school year terminology of it. You really wanted it to be Spider-Man
0: prom, right? <laughs>
2: like, I think that'd be great if every single Spider-Man movie centered around some, you know, massive high school dance. One of the worst. Like, uh, <laughs> like Winter then, Formal? The third one would, yeah, third one would be Winter Formal. Uh, <laughs> and then the fourth one would be uh, like Quinceañera. I don't know. And it's like <laughs> a spin-off movie. Although the name
0: Homecoming feels like it came from a time when they really thought the entire movie was going to be really centered around Homecoming, and the Homecoming dance itself actually factored in not a ton right. to the actual right. Homecoming movie. The one very memorable part was <laughs> Zendaya flipping off the camera, which was a great moment. But other than that, I don't know if there was a whole lot of Homecoming action. So uh, they can go anywhere they want to with it. I'm, but I, I mean. And the important thing is we're getting a Spider-Man movie. Tom Holland remains one of the best things about the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe right now. So, whatever they want to call it, I'm I'm at a solid ten for this movie right now.
1: This week was, uh, or this past week was Dan Slott's last uh, issue, so it was like it was really huge. So, for those of you who haven't kept up with comic books, like he's been on this, he's been on the Amazing Spider-Man title for roughly ten years now, uh, and like gone through like ups and downs, uh, but th- the issue 801 that came out like was just really, really beautiful and well done, and it was an amazing send-off, so uh, Nick Spencer is going to be picking up the title uh, moving forward. So, um, Do you now feel guilty about
2: being the premier hater of James <laughs> on the internet? <laughs>
1: I don't. I do not, but it was just like, it was, I don't know how he pulled off such like a really well-done like last book but he did. Uh, so yeah, like I, it was, it was a really cool send off, and it made me, it just, it did make me like appreciative of all the stuff that like you kind of go through with his run. Um, but I am, I'm really excited for Nick Spencer to pick up the book. And uh,
0: how would you, uh, Chris, sum up Dan Slott's like tenure on Spider Man? Like if you were just going to give it a really brief overview, Dan Slott is a premier writer at Marvel. He's been around for a long time. He's about to start writing their Fantastic Four title. He's been very successful on uh, he had a Silver Surfer book that was very, very successful, but Spider-Man has been his premier one. And like Chris said, there's been some things that he's done with the Spider-Man story that have been really well-received, some that have been less well-received as the biggest Spider-Man fan on this podcast. What would you give as your like final review of his time there?
1: Oh man. Like I think he took a big step in giving us some uh, really cool looks at like re- like some really big changes in like Peter's life. Like, You have, like, Peter Parker himself is, you know, one of the smarter people in the Marvel comic universe. So he, like, leaned into that and gave him his own company. And, you know, we see him take on this Tony Stark-esque lifestyle, you know, in the latter years of the run. So uh, I think he definitely, like, Dan Slott wasn't afraid to take some chances and try to, like, see the character grow uh, for whatever missteps, like, or, like, whatever shortcomings the overall story had for that at times, um, he definitely wasn't afraid to take those chances and, like, try to see the character evolve some. Uh, so, yeah, I think at the end of the day, you saw a lot of the passion that Dan slot had for the character. And so there's, a you know, whatever issues I feel like I had, like, you know, he, he loves Spider-Man. So
0: Moving on to other another Marvel movie that's coming out uh, in just a couple of weeks here. The subject of our next episode actually is going to be Ant-Man and the Wasp. Uh, that movie is going to be coming out first weekend in July. We just got our first round of reviews. We haven't seen it, but we just got our first round of reviews from people who have seen it. And um, it's been very, very positive so far. The word about the buzz about it has been really, really good. I don't know if you guys looked it into any of the reviews, but the early takes seem to be that Evangeline Lily's Wasp really steals the show. It's supposed to be very funny apparently there's a lot of surprises there's a lot of spoilers this is not something you want to read too much about before you go and see it just uh, uh strap yourself in and get ready to go i'm pumped to see it opening night yeah i keep forgetting that it's coming out so soon yeah um, isn't that weird it feels like a it feels like we just got a giant marvel movie not that long.
2: and i like i think it is really interesting you know to see how this does because it felt like the first one i like i think i liked more than a lot of people did but it definitely was a movie that had kind of you know, multiple plot strings that they were trying to tie. Cause if you remember like Edgar Wright was supposed to be the director and then he got pulled off due to creative differences or whatever. There's a lot of drama behind the scene. Yeah. And then they pulled in Peyton Reed to finish it up. So I've always been kind of curious what would happen with a movie that, you know, had the same creative team behind it the whole time. So It'll be interesting to see what happens with that, and you know I'm glad to hear that people seem to have liked it, especially since uh Peyton Reed is apparently already trying to put himself in the director's seat for a Fantastic Four movie I read today, so oh he so. is. Yeah, yeah, he said he said he like, just quit, bring, like, pay it under the universe. Well, he just said anytime he's at the Marvel Studios office, he just brings it up in the hallway. <laughs> <laughs> like just in case they require the rights that they'll think about him.
0: Because the Fox deal did go through this week. This gets a little bit nerdy, but Marvel did finalize their deal to buy Fox, which means that Marvel now has the rights to make uh, X-Men movies, Fantastic Four movies. they have access to the Silver Surfer. Dr. Doom, a lot of villains, this really opens up the possibilities for some big names we brought into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which is exciting if you like superhero movies, a little less exciting if you're terrified of the like the growing corporate oligarchy and the way that it's controlling the things we buy and the things that we think about. So it, it's, you know, into every life, a little rain must come. And I, I think that we are nuanced enough on this podcast to be excited on the podcast and save our reservations for offline longer think pieces.
1: I don't know, I'm kind of into Disney-owning everything, so... <laughs> but, uh, on the, on the uh, Ant-Man and Wasp roundup, I thought it was really funny, like, going through some of the early reaction tweets, and there was one person who tweeted uh, how we would get, like, answers to Infinity War in this, and then immediately under that tweet, it was somebody else who was tweeting, it was like, if you expect answers to Infinity War, get rid of those expectations, so you really don't know, like, if you're actually going in and like going to get any resolve out of what we were left with back in I uh, may
0: this one actually takes place before infinity war is that what we've been led to understand yeah i yeah, think I it's think like so. right in
1: between yeah. uh civil war and, the, and infinity war so
0: i'm excited about it it feels like a very like low stakes i need something a little low stakes after infinity war i need like a smaller more contained fun heist movie and that seems feels like what this is going to be. as far as i can tell that's what this is going to be we really haven't seen a whole lot despite the trailer. They've kept the whole plot very
2: under wraps. Yeah, yeah, they have. Which is great. Except we know Michelle Pfeiffer's in it.
0: <laughs> Which is good. It's high time to see Michelle Pfeiffer in a movie again. Yeah, seriously.
2: Um, moving into the DC
0: side of things, uh, DC's still trying to write the ship. We saw a few pictures from the upcoming Aquaman movie. Uh, we still do not have a trailer or any footage of that, but that's coming out in December. We did get a few, uh, a little bit of news about the. Batman movie there is going to be another Batman movie surprise surprise coming out it does not look like Ben Affleck is going to be playing Batman in this they're going to moving in a direction of looking for a younger Batman presumably somebody who could carry the franchise for a few years now and the Joker movie is also moving forward Uh, Joaquin Phoenix is going to be playing the Joker uh, in a movie that is apparently also approached Robert De Niro about a role do you guys think it's too soon to try for another Batman movie? Are, are we far enough away from the Dark Knight trilogy to give another and, and now Ben Affleck's Batman to try another Batman solo film?
1: I just don't know who they're going like, who, who they would even put in there. Like, yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't know what young actor actually fits the mold of Bruce Wayne. I like I'm totally down for a story there, but I don't know who I have marked up for it right now.
2: Ryan, what do you think? I feel like there is a lot they could do with a Batman movie. Um, I mean, I don't think that uh, the Ben Affleck vehicles were particularly successful to be charitable. And I think that, you know, what Nolan's movies did, you know, obviously did they did very well. But I also think that you know, we've talked about this on the podcast before. Like, there are a few different directions you can go with Batman and tell a really effective story. So I would love to see more of like a like a detective type I would too. story. I mean, of it would. Yeah. And I would love to see another movie and you know, I'll, I'll refrain from getting on my like 20 minute soapbox here, but I would love to see a movie where Gotham City plays more of a character because most of the best Batman comics have Gotham as kind of the like focal point. Um and really, you know, tie into Bruce Wayne's relationship with this city and where he comes from. So I think, like I think there's enough compelling ways to do that, and Matt Reeves is such a good director that I think there's you know a lot of areas that could go
0: that's I think what probably has me most more interested than who they would cast in the part than the villain they would get than the place that it would find in the in the d c extended universe is the fact that they have Matt Reeves helming this, who did such a good job with his Planet of the Apes trilogy, and I think that no matter how cynical I get about DC's movies, and I, and I am cynical about them, they made a really smart call in getting Matt Reeves on board to handle a, a Batman movie. And so I I feel a little bit like, uh, like Charlie Brown uh, going to kick the football out of Lucy's hands again, uh, getting excited about a DC movie. But I am holding on for the fact that they have one thing that the rest of these movies have not really had, with the exception of Wonder Woman, is a really good director at the helm. And Matt Reeves is a really good storyteller. So that's the the best shot they've had they have going forward. I think. I'm excited about seeing how much freedom that he has. And I'm Batman. there's a there's a million stories in Batman, and some of them are good, and some of them are bad. and comic book fans have gotten used to taking the good with the bad over time. So we can deal with a, a few mediocre stories for a few years and and i think that the right movie could really get everybody back on board yeah
2: now the joker movie yeah is- <laughs> that i don't know
1: about <laughs> <laughs> oh man i thought we were gonna pull out of talking about this oh, thing I thought but- we,
0: we were gonna end on such a high note and then ryan just like tanked it all into oh. the <laughs> <laughs> um i don't know joaquin phoenix joaquin phoenix what an interesting choice for the Joker. Sure. Right. Like on the one hand, sure. I can kind of see why they would do that. But, um, Joaquin Phoenix is an odd guy and, and the director of this one is going to be Todd Phillips best known for directing writing and directing the, the hangover trilogy. So, and, and Bob De Niro, I I don't know, man, it's a, it's, this could go a lot of directions right now. And I don't really I, I'm at the I'm a little bit oversaturated on the Joker.
2: Yeah. I just like plus I mean, even in the comics, like any Joker origin stories are not great. Like the character is just way more interesting if like you think that he's lying about his past the whole time. Obviously, like we're a comic book podcast. So, you know, I think Scott Snyder played with that in a really interesting way in his Batman run where, you know, you you thought you kind of had a handle on who the Joker was and like what sort of force the Joker was. And then, you know, it was clear that he was basically building this huge house of cards and you still never knew what was actually happening. Um, and I think the Joker is most effective for that. So, you know, I guess if you did some kind of movie where you had a series of unreliable narrators and, um, you don't actually know what's true, it could maybe be interesting, but I, yeah, I just foresee this being very hard to sit through. Um, but it'll still be better than the Jared Leto one.
0: (laughs) I think what's difficult about the Joker for me is that every, and this happens not just in the movies and the TV shows, but in the comics as well, is that every writer writer sees it as their opportunity to show you just how dark they can go and how cruel and mean and sadistic they can make a person. And at some point, it runs out of creativity and it just feels like an exercise in, in sadism on the part of the the viewer. And there's not a lot of creativity in it. I think a really good Joker in Christopher Nolan's uh, Dark Knight movie with Heath Ledger's performance is obviously a really good example of this. It's also done very, very well in Batman, the animated series where they show a Joker who is, uh, not just very cruel but extremely unpredictable who confounds expectations, who uh, keeps everybody around him guessing and the minute you think you get a beat on who he is like you said Ryan, uh, he changes the whole game on you because he doesn't play by his own rules and that is a very difficult character I would think to make a uh, to center a whole movie around as your protagonist one of the good things that The Dark Knight did was that Heath Ledger was in comparatively few scenes and and his presence just sort of hung over the whole movie, disrupting everybody else's idea of how Gotham City was supposed to run. I would love to see another really good Batman movie with Joker as the bad guy, but uh, I I don't really need to see a Joker movie with Batman as this off-screen presence, which I, I think is what we would get with with a Joker movie starring Joaquin Phoenix. So I'm prepared to be proven wrong, but I'm not very excited about it right now. Uh, which brings us to the DC universe. And speaking of characters that are sort of hard to get a bead on, the reason that we decided to talk about a character called the Swamp Thing this week, I, I think it's twofold. First of all, we read a lot of comic books here, but we've, we're only human and we've got blind spots. And sometimes we just use this podcast as an excuse to educate ourselves on a character that we don't know very much about. And our listeners are sort of our our test audience on this. So the Swamp Thing is a very well-known character to people who are really knee-deep in the comic book genre. Uh, He's not somebody that I was super familiar with before the past couple of weeks. I think the same is true for, for most of us here. I also think that uh he's he's extremely influential not just in terms of the stories he's told but the people who've told those stories. Uh his definitive runs came from some very very well-known comic book creators and even if they were never they never made Swamp Thing into a marquee name, they created some real some very important stories that have been inf- influential that have been influential in the genre at large. Why did you guys decide to read? Because there's there's at least, I think by my count, there's at least four really major swamp thing runs. Where'd
2: you dive in? I read some of uh Alan Moore's run, just I'd never had before. Um, you know, I think all of us, I'm sure, have read lots of Alan Moore uh stuff from time to time. Um, but for some reason I'd never read his Swamp Thing run, so I picked that up and then I'd read a few years ago, I'd read Uh, a few trades of scott snyder's run on swamp thing which he was running or which he was writing like right when he first started on uh batman full-time um i think i i have a feeling it was sort of dc's like in case batman we need to pull him off quickly he still has another book kind of thing but but yeah and so i read that a few years ago along with and then it tied in really closely with jeff lemire's animal man um so i was reading both of those at the same time
0: did you read Lemire's Animal Man
2: as well? Yeah, yeah, I read the first uh, couple or two or three trades of that as well.
1: I really wish I would have like started with Alan Moore's uh, Swamp Thing versus because I ended up uh, reading Grant Morrison and his like co-authored uh, book. I really enjoy Grant Morrison, and so I thought that this would be like a way like easier intro for me. And I was kind of I was like pretty wrong in that because um, like even as like I started off, I just felt like one extremely lost in it um but two like the art i i and i'm blanking on who even like did the art for the book but like i realized like i'm not doing like this any kind of justice or selling this book at all but like the art was like just like really harsh and uh so yeah and it like Oh did, you didn't like it. No 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 and so like bad like, I feel like would you have bad art accompanied by like you know a story that is kind of hard to just like jump into it kind of like the overall experience was uh not that great after like I started getting into that I started reading so much about Alan Moore's run on uh Swamp Thing and just like how much uh how much people loved it just like from the horror aspect to just like the overall like being of Swamp Thing and um, the lore of Swamp Thing and uh so yeah I don't know I feel like uh I feel like Alan Moore himself is uh he's kind of like the Beatles were to me for the longest time like I didn't grow up with the Beatles at all and like they were never like the go-to music in my house so I never really cared to check them out uh but I always knew they were incredibly significant and uh so and I feel like that's how I feel about more like when i got into comics there was a ton to catch up on and i wanted to do that with a lot more of the modern stuff and i never really made an effort to go back through like some of the more critically acclaimed pieces um in comic books and so yeah i I really wish like this would have been like even even with like beyond Watchmen. like i've just never like Dove into Alan Moore's work, so I kind of wish I would have like actually picked up the Alan Moore run, especially after hearing you guys talk about it.
0: Well, let's back up for a second and and uh, describe define some of these terms that we're using here. Alan Moore, who we've been referencing a lot, is is an extremely important person in the real and the comic book world. I think Beatles is an interesting comparison. He'd be kind of like, I mean, who would be the the rock and roll comparison to somebody like Alan Moore, like a Phil Spector type person or a. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> that seems uh,
2: that seems a little harsh <laughs> but, but, but how harsh does it really seem like I alan mean, moore is alan a moore not being accused of murder but is
0: not a murderer that we know of but he's an interest he's an unusual dude and, and we will get into it, this a little bit in the script but alan moore is a is an extremely he's an incredibly talented comic book writer and creator who left a huge influence, especially in some of his early work. Books like The Watchmen, V for Vendetta, uh, From Hell. These were all turned into movies, obviously. And then there's The Killing Joke, which is a very famous Batman and Joker story. League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Man, the movies really don't
2: do him justice. <laughs> That's always- well, I mean, there's a reason There's a reason he's taken his name off of all of them.
0: Yeah, he is not. He is, like, very famously disavowed any involvement with the film adaptations of the stuff that he's written. The only one of those that I think is kind of good is V for Vendetta, and he wanted nothing to do with that one, either. He was very unhappy with it. Yeah, and the book is way better, too. He's written a lot. A lot of great books that have been turned into mediocre/slash bad movies. His most famous one is Watchmen, which is getting a new TV adaptation from uh, it's Lindelof, right? Damon Lindelof from Lost is turning it into which is very promising. I think that's there is a potential there for that to be good he's extremely controversial. His stuff often turns very dark, sometimes uh, a little bit sadistic. He's come under fire for his treatment of women. Uh, and, and we, I want to be like honest about some of the things. And I think we've talked about this before. Some of the things that he's done, some of his plot devices, uh, he does tend to use sexual violence and, and rape in a lot of his comics. So I'm not recommending these uh, without qualification. Uh, but his influence is huge. And he got his real start. He he had done a few things before this, but he got his real start doing Swamp Thing. It's not like there had never been horror in the comic book genre before. Horror has always been a part of the comic book genre. Even before superheroes, they would tell monster stories uh, and you, there would be aliens and creatures from the beyond and, and dragon. These, these were, this has been a, an old part of it, but Alan Moore was one of the first ones to really take it beyond trappings, just creating big, scary monsters to really create uh, a real genuine psychological terror. He's, he's profoundly interested in it and he's profoundly good at creating these in terms of books you guys have read. Do you guys read a lot of horror comics?
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. Like, I've tried to get into Lock and Key before, and like, I never really got into that. But and that's oh, not even Chris. In like, I know, I know, oh, Chris, I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I was gonna, I knew I was about I to hit a nerve. Loves Lock and Key. <laughs> I knew I was about to hit a nerve, but like, yeah, I've just, it's never a genre that I've actually like, I've gravitated towards, and that's across all mediums, like, even beyond comic books, t from TV and uh movies it's just not something that i really ever seek out so even like some of the stuff that i was reading in the grant morrison and alan moore run like it was startling to actually see in a comic book because i feel like i never actually get that through comic books
2: yeah i mean as it was hinted at lock and key is one of my favorite comics probably ever it, like it's written by joe hill um and I feel really bad that I can't remember the illustrator off the top of my head because the art is amazing. Um, but Joe Hill is the son of Stephen King, and it is an extremely Stephen Kingy uh type storyline. Um, and I really loved the whole thing. Most of my other forays into horror comics have primarily been because of my interest in like in the um in the creators. So like Ed Brubaker has a couple couple comics series, um, that, uh, especially one called Fatal that kind of touches on horror and I really like that and then um, Scott Snyder is probably the person I've done the most with uh, or the right, read the most horror comics. His uh, series American Vampire is really, really good. Yeah, I do like that series a lot. And then he had a series that I think he's only done one trade so far and he's talked about it being like super traumatic to write, um, which I get because it's basically like, especially if you read it as a parent and normally I don't pull this card but like as a parent it's like especially traumatic to read uh he wrote a series called witches a few years ago um and it's like it's incredible um but also like very disturbing so i understand why he didn't write too much more of it and i don't think it's a coincidence either that you know snyder was the person that dc picked to um kick off swamp things new 52 run and then I've I really like Jeff Lemire as well um and he's he's done some horror and sci-fi particular uh comics here and there. And then I guess the most recent one I read was uh the the new run of sabrina the teenage witch which is like deeply disturbing which and, hannah uh,
0: recommended to all of us early on right she was yeah. a big uh
2: which like i don't think i enjoyed as much as hannah um because it is like it is like actually very satanic uh <laughs> but, like, in a very like very like bothering way if you have uh any kind of predilection toward uh faith uh but it, you know it was it, like it was an interesting read for sure um and i also like really like horror movies so this kind of stuff is very much up my alley so um i think reading Moore's comic felt very uh felt really great and you know it, it, like seeing him like you said tyler you know it's it's he's definitely come under some rightful fire um particularly i think like i've read I've read V for Vendetta and From Hell and Watchmen and most of his like DC superhero stuff. Um I've made it through about 2 trades of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and it's actually like one of the few series I've like consciously stopped reading. Um, yeah, that one got really bad. Yeah, his just like sadistic use of sex um and violence just really got to me. I mean, you know, if you love those comics, sure, but it just wasn't my thing and I think I mean, I think he really does tip into that, but, um, reading, reading Swamp Thing reminded me why he's so respected. Just like, I mean, his writing, like there's that, I saw someone quoted, I, th- I think in like the forward to the collected edition and, you know, they, they quote his like opening line about these like, you know, thick, thick raindrops that make this, uh, sidewalk look like leopards. And it's just like, man, like no one writes like that. It's incredible. Um, so there really is, I mean, for me, at least, like, reading, you know, reading a horror comic with someone really writing at the height of their power and ability is, like, really, really wonderful.
0: And uh, that, that sort of power, what Alan Moore is capable of when he's at his best, when, he, when he's operating at, at the peak of his gifts and, and exploring things that are actually worth exploring is something that we talk a little bit in the script. In 1963, a retired air traffic controller by the name of Harlan Ford was stalking the swamps of northern Louisiana, practicing his new hobby, wildlife photography. After a life spent in the famously frantic, stressful career of directing the takeoffs and landings of airplanes, Ford enjoyed the peace and quiet of America's southern bogs and capturing the images of the local flora and fauna. Alligators, egrets, and, of course, honeybees, the huge numbers of which inspired the marshland's name, the Honey Island Swamp. Ford was visiting the Honey Island Swamp with a friend named Billy, and in addition to photography, the two were on a mission. While flying over the swamp, they'd spied what looked like an abandoned cabin. Not the sort of thing you or I might be interested in trekking through the Louisiana swamps to find, especially if you've ever seen a horror movie in your life, but Ford was intrigued. And it was on this hunt that he and Billy got a little more than they bargained for. They reached a clearing, and there, staring directly at them, was a creature unlike anything they'd ever seen before. It stood seven foot tall, with gray, reedy hair and sunken yellow eyes. And even in the midst of their shock, Ford and Billy noticed something else. A pungent, repulsive swamp smell. It was like nothing I'd ever seen before, Ford would later relate, ugly and sinister and looking like something out of a horror movie. They had little time to react before the creatures slipped out of the clearing and into surrounding marshy wildness of the underbrush. Nine years later, in 1974, Ford and Billy returned to the Honey Island swamp on a hunting trip. This time, the two encountered a number of wild boar, freshly killed, their throats ripped from their bodies. It looked like the work of one of the swamp's alligators, but the boar's carcasses were too far from the water to be the work of gators. But in inspecting the surrounding marshlands, they found evidence of another creature who may have been to blame. A footprint, larger than a man's boot, with three webbed toes. Rather than take their chances on another run-in with the creature, Ford and Billy fled from the swamp, although they returned the next day to take plaster casts of the footprints so they would at least have some evidence of what would become known as the Honey Island Swamp Monster. They weren't alone. In fact, a man named Ted Williams claims to have seen the creature many times, or, as he theorized, figured there was more than one. I could have killed them, Williams was known to have boasted, but I didn't because they didn't seem to want to harm me. One local legend says that the creature or creatures are actually the result of a circus train crash near the swamp in the first part of the 20th century, in which escaped monkeys bred with alligators. But that's impossible, right? In 1971, three years before Ford's second excursion to Honey Island, comic book artist Len Wayne was riding the subway to Queens. He'd been toying around with the idea for a new character for DC Comics, a monster both from and of the swamps. Horrible to look at, but heroic on the inside. Like a cross between the Incredible Hulk and the creature from the Black Lagoon, a towering mass of vegetable matter and boggy greenery, he would be a different kind of comic book character now that what's known as the Bronze Age of superhero comics, marked by the dominance of the X-Men, was in full swing. This character wouldn't be aspirational, relatable, or even an anti-hero like Wolverine, who Len Wayne had co-created over at Marvel Comics. This character would be a tragic monster, a cautionary tale. Wayne liked the idea, but he was having a hard time getting his head around it. His colleagues at DC asked what he was working on, and Wayne struggled to answer. I don't know, he'd respond. It's just sort of a swamp thing. The name stuck. Initially, the idea of Swamp Thing was a pretty time honored concept of a science experiment gone wrong. In the first run, the Swamp Thing was a man who had once been Alec Holland, a happily married scientist conducting experiments in the swamps of Louisiana with his wife, Linda. But their research is sabotaged by thugs from a competing company who bomb his research facility. Covered in mysterious chemicals, that all powerful 1960s agent of transformative quality. Holland runs into the swamp, his body covered in flames. The chemicals interact with the swamp, and boom, the swamp thing is born. Not the most original origin story, and honestly, the first few years of his existence weren't particularly noteworthy either. Largely, the swamp thing was just sort of an off-brand Hulk who couldn't turn back into Bruce Banner and hung out in swamps a lot. He fought off bad guys who would invade his territory, and his stories had a bit of an eco-friendly vibe, but this was the 70s. Everything had a green angle. It took a little something else to set the Swamp Thing apart. It took Alan Moore. In 1982, Wes Craven was taking a crack at a Swamp Thing movie, which meant DC was hard at work giving the comic a big marketing push. At first, the comic was written by a writer named Martin Pasco, but when his plate got too full doing writing work for Cheers, the title fell to Moore. Moore was little known at the time and a bit of an oddball, a gruff antisocial anarchist who worshipped the Roman snake god Glycon. He was also, as anyone could clearly see from his work, absurdly talented. The Swamp Thing was the first title in which Moore was truly allowed to stretch his wings, and he used this freedom to create a gothic horror masterpiece. He quickly did away with the notion of Swamp Thing as basically a human trapped in the body of a monster. In his first storyline, the Swamp Thing discovers that he's not Alec Holland at all. Holland is dead, but when he died in the waters of the swamp, the dim sentience of the surrounding marsh recreated his body and mind as best as it could crafting a creature that thought it had used to be a man, but was actually just a mass of vegetation given a vague imitation of self-awareness. It's as horrifying as it sounds. This allowed Moore to dig deep into questions of humanity and environmentalism and what makes mankind so great that it's even worth saving at all. Other members of the DC Comics universe would occasionally show up in the Swamp Things world, most notably John Constantine, although the likes of the Justice League do make occasional appearances. But they were peripheral, and many of them only knew of the Swamp Thing as sort of an urban legend, the way we might talk about Bigfoot. The Swamp Thing was a lonely creature, having all the memories of being a human, but not having actually lived any of them. It was regularly called on to save the denizens of the Louisiana swamps from horrible dangers, both supernatural and otherwise, and at the end of every rescue, when the day was saved and the bad guy sent off to justice, the lingering question in the Swamp Thing's mind was ever a dim why. What's the purpose of all of this? Alan Moore would go on to explore these questions in other works, most notably his masterpiece, The Watchman, but also stories like From Hell or his famed Joker story, The Killing Joke. Over these stories and many others, Moore's questions hang like a foggy dread. Is there any point to any of this? Do we create our own sense of meaning, and if so, can't we just as easily take it away? Is this whole thing just a comedy, and if so, doesn't that make it all perilously close to a horror story? Swamps are solitary. The animals in them seem mostly bored until they're fleeing for their life from the waiting jaws of a hungry alligator or a colony of ants. It's difficult to think of many places on earth in which human beings belong less. The swamp thing's horror works on two levels. First, by bringing something as alien as a human being into the swamp and forcing him or it to become one with it. But the second level of horror, the scariest part, is Moore's suggestion that it's not just the swamp that's hostile to humanity. The whole world and our whole lives are a swamp too, and we're all invaders here. We think we're alive, we think we're human, but really, what proof do we have? Ted Williams, the man who claimed to have seen the Honey Island Swamp Monster many times, wasn't scared of it. He'd even boasted that he could have killed it if he wanted to. He claimed he could produce proof of them. Maybe he could have, we'll never know. One day he took his boat out to lay down lines for trout out in the Honey Island Swamp wilderness. He was never seen again. did you guys find because I, I did find this in reading some of the the Swamp thing comics that it, that it was it took a little while to get your bearings around uh, not just the characters but the general tone because it t- there's there's always kind of a, a little bit of a a longer on ramp when you start reading a new comic book because if, if you're not familiar with it there's gonna be new characters that take you a little while to get familiar with. this one took me a little longer than most. It seems like for most Swamp Thing comics, you're really plunged into the deep end of the pool and you really have to work hard to catch up on where the writer is going.
1: Yeah, I think that was one of the harder things for me with getting on the Grant Morrison run was I can pick up in the middle, you know, at the start of a run and kind of get a general sense of what's going on, who is who. But there, I feel like there's just so many pieces to Swamp Thing lore that like, I had no clue like and so I found myself on Wikipedia just going through like trying to catch up on like the many, like the mini like iterations of Swamp Thing and like how he came to be and like why I should care about this like one character. So I and I found that myself doing that with this run more than I do. Uh, with many others, and I—that's probably just due to the fact that, like, so many other runs have um, their places and pop culture. Like a lot of characters throughout many other comic books that we read have that notoriety. Whereas, like Swamp Thing, just like you don't really, yeah, you just don't know many things beyond like this, like the thing that I have in my mind. Like when it comes to Swamp Thing, is like the TV show from the like from yeah, ninety to exactly, ninety-three. Yeah. Like, and I have that in my head. like that's all i really know so yeah it definitely i think that that's like that that was a struggle for actually jumping on the uh, jumping onto this but and i think that like jumping into like alan Moore's like definitive run would be um would be something i'm like really interested in and probably will end up doing just because it seems like you can get into that and like get heavier bearings like on pretty quickly and then just go through like a pretty unique story do you like horror movies chris I don't, I don't, not at all. Like it's, it's not even something well, that
0: may be part of the problem.
1: I, yeah, yeah, no, sure. Like I, but like, I also don't like horror in comics feels like such a disconnected medium for horror for me like I don't like it's not something that I find myself I've never read anything that I flipped page to page and felt like a true sense of dread you when I was reading some of the reviews of like Alan Moore's run even and people talking about you know some of the scenes that are throughout the pages I like even in those I was wondering I was like I wonder if I would even feel this because I've never like I've never actually experienced that when reading a comic book and I kind of stay away from just in general like just out of sheer, like, non-interest of horror stuff. Uh, Elise and I, my wife and I, we were, speak- we were talking about, like, there were, like, a ton of weird, awful horror movies, like, released when we were in high school, and we were talking about House of a Thousand Corpses and just, like, how awful that kind of stuff was. And I think, like, going back to that, I was like, oh, that was probably the moment that I was like, yeah, horror is just not for me. Like, it was just, like, overly done. Like, there wasn't really much to it beyond, like, this gross factor and as I was reading Grant Morrison's run like even in the first few pages it was just like some of the art like and some of the things that were depicted it felt like it was like this over-the-top grotesqueness just for the sake of being that and so I don't know if I would I don't know if I just missed something in the horror genre but yeah it's just not not
2: something that I've ever sought out. Ryan do you have a a rebuttal? (laughs) I mean it's always you really love you really love horror. Yeah, I do. Um and I can't always like totally explain why. And like I've tried to think about it and I just like genuinely don't get it. Um I do think that like something I really love and, and maybe part of the reason that it, it can take a little time to get into the Swamp Thing comics is like essentially they're writing in a different genre. Um, because it's really like full southern gothic horror. Um, not even just like straight horror. You know, this is talking about like stuff in the Louisiana Bayou, um, and it's dripping with this kind of like, you know, it's set in the swamp, and it feels very swampy. And like, I and this is where I like run out of words to explain things. Like for some reason, it just like feels very humid. Um, like you can tell that things are rotting, that this is a place where things are growing kind of out of control. And and that I think is just like a really interesting storytelling thing to me. And I think part of the reason I like horror is that. To me, it's one of the few genres that, like, really surprises me because the storytelling beats can be so different outside of everything else. Something I think Swamp Thing does really well, um, you know, to pull it into, the like, a horror film type thing is, like, there was a movie that came out earlier this year. It's probably my favorite sci-fi horror movie I've seen in a long time called Annihilation, and some of the images in that are very Swamp Thing um, where it's this weird mixture of growth and decay and the two the two join together in these really weird ways that don't fit and are just like very off-putting um but at the same time like very like very interesting because they're not like anything else so i think that's like that's part of my attraction to it um probably to horror in general but also specifically to these comics and i think the best runs that I have read on this, um, and obviously like my experience is limited, but maybe the reason that so many authors, like, you know, talked about Moore and Morrison and uh, Scott Snyder, but, like, you know, also Brian K. Vaughn and Mark Millar and Charles Sula and um, Sola, Sula, um, have all, yeah, yeah, have all written Swamp Thing, and, you know, there's got to be a reason that uh, this, like, kind of obscure side of DC keeps bringing people back to Um, Keep bringing these really talented people back to the well to write about it. So, yeah, I, I just think, like, there's a lot you can do with the character. And I think there aren't very many places in the DC universe that, like, depend on setting and kind of, like, wildlife to do so much of the storytelling. And I also think, like, some of the best creators, too, like, steal some of those ideas for other heroes. Like, I know John Constantine is another person that a lot of you know, big DC writers have taken from. And he shows up in Swamp Thing. and
0: He was introduced
2: in Swamp Thing. That's where he... Yeah. His origin was. And then, like, you know, I think Snyder lifted some of the horror elements of, you know, that might be more suited to Swamp Thing and, like, put them wholesale on Batman. And even, like, you know, something more popular, like Christopher Nolan's Batman, like, those are basically horror movies just with super, uh, superhero overlay. So, I th- you know, I th- I think... I think these ideas just in this, like the ability of superhero media to kind of shock us or surprise us, like has a lot of their roots in horror comics and movies.
0: And, uh, and that's something that I would think would be, cause we've, we've talked about this before. Then, the ability and the necessity of superhero movies to be more than just superhero movies there. It's not a superhero isn't a genre. Superheroes can exist in any genre, which is why you have guardians of the galaxy as sort of a space opera. Logan that exists as more of a Western, the dark Knight, uh, which is a sort of a crime movie. The superhero movies can work as horror. And some of them have in the past, I would say that the blade movies are kind of, uh, certainly indebted to certain horror
2: tropes, I mean, I think Batman Begins is a horror movie. I think Batman um, Begins is probably a horror movie. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Like the part where an unseen Batman is pulling villains up by their legs and, you know, you don't see him except as a shadow. Um, such a great. He's terrified <laughs> people. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. But like that's, I mean, that's a horror sequence.
0: And it does look like this upcoming Venom movie. They're, they're, the trailers at least look very inspired by uh, certain horror tropes. Whether or not that Venom movie is going to be any good is right now anybody's guess, but but full credit for for trying, I suppose, so far. One thing that I think is really interesting, I, I do want to talk about whether or not other superheroes could lend themselves to a really good horror story. I want to give a shout out to Al Ewing, who just relaunched uh, over at Marvel, The Incredible Hulk. His title is The Immortal Hulk, and he is definitely staging it as more of a horror movie, which is what the Hulk was originally concepted as, is a man who can't control this monster inside of him. Al Ewing is really taking, taking him back to his roots. So I think the the possibility of a Hulk movie that had a horror element to it is definitely there. I don't know how soon we're going to be getting something like that. Any other characters that you guys would like to see that would maybe have like, do you think there, there's the possibility for a good Swamp Thing movie um, or even another John Constantine movie? Take another stab at that.
1: Oh, if you gave me Annihilation, like, visuals with the Swap Thing movie, I'd be all in. It sure works. If you didn't see Annihilation, you're really missing out. It's a
0: really great, great movie starring Natalie Portman.
1: Yeah, as I was thinking about this, though, like, I I haven't been a, like, super consistent Doctor Strange reader, like, but I think back to uh, Hickman's run on New Avengers and when Doctor Strange... uh, He was in some separate dimension making deals with demons, and I was thinking about that. I feel like there's there is a lot of potential to explore that more demonic side, like the like evil side of uh, the magic in Doctor Strange. I doubt we will get it uh, much in the in the movies. Um, I feel like if if we're talking like anything that's like big right now, I feel like Doctor Strange probably has the most um ability to
0: do that that one is being created by it's written and directed by scott derrickson who could have seen them the exorcism emily rose he's a very well-known horror director i think he was also involved in the conjuring am i right there no that was james
2: wan i think he was involved in an exorcist sequel though
0: he knows his way around the horror genre and, and doctor strange lends himself so well to horror movies i'm surprised that the first doctor strange didn't go that direction a little bit more Maybe we'll get it in the sequel. There is a Doctor Strange sequel supposedly in the works. I'll give another. I'd love to see another shot, especially after Infinity War, where I thought Doctor Strange stole the
2: show a few times. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's going to be someplace that Marvel needs to go more. And, you know, I, I like, I think that's kind of my only hesitance with like the Disney Fox deal is that Disney hasn't shown a big willingness to kind of go out, like to color outside the lines with the intellectual property that they have um especially like in marvel and star wars and i mean for good reason like you know i love all the marvel movies and i'm not like trying to you know diminish what they've been able to do with that but i think letting some creators you know like if they really want to make a horror x-men movie i think that could be super effective like i think a nightcrawler movie um could be really good i think a gambit horror movie could be really good um or like you know that dabbles into more of that southern gothic stuff I think an incredible Hulk horror movie could be really good. But, you know, I mean, I do think that at some point, and, and I think they've started to do this a little bit too, as we saw with uh, Black Panther, I think in particular, um, you know, letting their characters or their creators actually have more of a voice. So, you know, if they turned the keys over to Scott Derrickson and said, you know, you can really go a little bit, you know, crazier with Doctor Strange 2, I think that could be really cool. But, and you know, while we're talking about it, if you could also have a Star Wars horror movie, that would also <laughs> you be great. want a Star Wars horror movie <laughs> this, is, this is a comic book This is a comic book podcast. So you're gonna
0: get you're um, gonna get like fifty horror superhero movies before you get one horror Star Wars movie. Yeah, I know. You know. I hate to be the one to break it to you, but it's not gonna happen. <laughs> and uh, unless you guys have anything else to say about something unless we, got, I think that will bring us to the end of our time. We're sorry to miss Hannah on this conversation, but we will make sure that she is back for next week when we talk about Ant-Man and the Wasp and give you everything you need to know about that. Thank you for listening to Cape Town, guys. Uh, If you like what you've heard, then please head over to uh, our Apple podcast page. Give us a good review. Maybe subscribe as well. If you didn't like it, then don't bother. We don't need to hear from you in that case. Um, I want to say thank you to Chad Michael Snavely and Seam Studios. Him and Jesse are the ones who make sure that we keep on sounding good here on this podcast. And I also want to give uh, our infrequent shout out to a guy named Justin Mazel. He took care of all of the artwork that you see. And that is all we know about him right now. He's a man of mystery. And uh, I think with that, that'll wrap it up. I'm Tyler Huckabee. I'm Chris Huckabee. And I'm Ryan Ham. For Hannah Mizell, we'll see you next time. Thanks, everybody. Bye.